Hello, I'm Brett Dillon, and this is the Movie Chronicles. This episode, I Let Slip the Dogs of War. We begin in Spain, which mostly kept out of the war, but now seeing the US spreading money around for reconstruction wants to get in the game. As a backdrop to this, shall we say, greed, is the notion that the US romanticizes war, there not being enough dead, at least in the upper classes, for the country to feel the pain. This is also in part because this disconnect from reality allows the US to see might as being right. The myth of the US fighting force, the elite force that never loses any war that isn't won before its entry into the war anyway, otherwise it's an elite force that always manages to snatch defeat from victory. It waves the loser flag high. Significantly, The rest of the world remember this elite force as pants-pissing cowards who run at the first sign of resistance. If I may use an analogy, it is the MAGA Republicans of world politics. Which brings us right in line with the right-wing politics of Benvenido Mr. Marshall. Welcome, Mr. Marshall. Director and script, Louis G. Belanger. Script, Juan Antonio Bardem and Miguel Muera. Director of Photography, Manuel Barangua. Editor, Pepita Orduna. Music, Jesus Garcia Leos. Actors, Lolita Sevilla, Manola Moran, Jose Isbet, Alberto Romia, Alvira Quintilla, Luis Perez de Leon, and Felix Fernandez. In 1996, Bienvenido Mr. Marshall was voted by critics fifth best film of the previous 100 years of Spanish cinema. This inspired director Louis Garcia Berlanga to make the movie El Sueño de la Maestra in 2002, from a scene the Spanish censors forced him to delete in 1952. The village of Villa del Campo in Spain is told by the party and By party, I mean the phalangist party that is the only game in Franco's fascist Spain, to tart itself up for the Americans who, they are told, have come to Europe to give away money from the Marshall Plan. The villagers only realize they have once when there is a possibility they will be satisfied. A small group are opposed to the concept of free money. Beware of Americans bearing gifts is their philosophy. For all the fact that this is a comedy, it is not the Ealing comedies that come to mind. What I was reminded of was Dylan Thomas's radio play Under Milkwood. Large portions of the film are in voiceover. The life of the village is laid out before us. The opening sequence stops time to introduce us to the place. The people are removed as the camera strolls around, and then returned as they are introduced. The plot gets underway halfway through. The manager of the greatest flamenco singer in Andalusia agrees to manage the event. He is chosen because he has been to America. He stage manages the village to look like what an American might think a Spanish village looks like. That night, the people dream. The standout dreams are those of the priest, 
Klansmen sit in judgment upon him, and the deaf mayor, he's a sheriff in a western film. In the credits, you will notice how I have not mentioned playwright Miguel Mejura. Legend says he was given the script to look at so his name could be used to sell the film. The director started the project to help promote flamenco singer Lolita Sevilla, and then decided to develop a more satirical meaning into the plot. He wanted to make the film about the way Spanish peasants saw America. He cast the town of Guadalí de la Sierra, which is about 50 kilometers outside Madrid, as both his location and secondary cast. For the scene in which the villagers line up to tell their heart's desire, these amateur actors ignored the script and asked what they really wanted. The film became so popular that it is often mentioned when trying to warn people about delusions, especially help from strangers. The Marshall Plan, formerly called the European Recovery Program, ERP, was supported by General George C. Marshall, then U.S. Secretary of State, and was based upon General Lucius de Clay's 1947 A Report on Germany. It operated from 1948 until 1952. The plan was to transfer $13.3 billion into the European economy with the aim to remove trade barriers, modernize industry, and prevent the spread of communism. Subtextually, if Europe couldn't afford to buy U.S. goods, the U.S. economy would go down the toilet. The scheme helped Europe with the hook that the U.S. could export to Europe. U.S. politicians also wanted to exercise some control over European politics. This was thought a good idea because U.S. politicians are very poor at long-term strategic thinking. Was it a success? Wise heads say no. The data shows that the cash input only increased GDP growth in Europe by half a percent. Its success could be better defined by the fact it caused European countries to coordinate their economic strategies. This is what caused most of the economic growth. Director Luigi Berlanga was born on June 12, 1921, in Valencia, Spain, and he died in 2010. Louis, growing up through Franco's distorted vision of Spain, carved out a career satirizing this very vision. He enrolled in the Blue Division during World War II and served on the Eastern Front. He did this to avoid the execution of his father as a Republican politician. As an aside, the Blue Division was a ruse by Franco. Both Germany and Italy wanted Spain in the war. Franco didn't want a shell hole of it and sent the smallest amount of support he could. History proved this to be one of the few good decisions Franco made. Initially, Louis studied law and philosophy, but in 1947, zigged when he should have zagged, and enrolled in the Instituto de Investigaciones y Experiencias Cinematográfica, Institute of Cinematographic Investigations and Experiences. In 1951, Louis made his debut as a director working with Juan Antonio Bardem. The pair are considered the renovators of Spanish cinema after the Civil War. Louis, in particular, kept tempting fate by getting things past the censor that were critical of the current regime. In 1953, he co-founded the magazine Objectivo.
history. In 1952, marched with full military pomp. On. March the 20th, the U.S. ratified a peace treaty with Japan. April the 8th, the U.S. Supreme Court limited the power of the President to seize private industries. The Supreme Court recently ruled that President means nothing. Be afraid. Among other reasons is that former President Donald Jumped Up Chump wants a return to power so he can alter the presidency to have all the powers of a 15th century queen. You rule Paul it, baby. April the 18th. The Treaty of San Francisco came into effect. The formal occupation of Japan ended. June the 4th. Myxomatosis, a virus fatal to European rabbits, was released on the French estate of Dr. Paul Felix, a man de Lille. The rabbit genocide was begun. June the 15th, Anne Frank's diary was first published in English. August the 13th, Japan joined the IMF and the World Bank. September the 18th, the Soviet Union vetoed Japan's application for membership to the United Nations. In the rest of the world, sans Spain of course, war films tend to reveal how pointless the process is by examining the effects on innocent victims. We move to France for Forbidden Games. Director and script, René Clément. Script, Jean Orange, Pierre Bost and François Boyer. Director of photography, Robert Julliard. Editor Roger Dwyer, actors Georges Pululi, Brigitte Fusi, Armandet, Laurence Badet, Jacques Marin, and André Wassley. With the wounds of World War II still raw in France, director René Clément decided to make a movie about the grieving process told from a child's perspective and set during the war. More importantly, he provides no easy answers or a resolution. A little girl, Paulette, is orphaned as her family flee the German invasion. She is adopted by Michel Dolay into his resentful family. They, Michel and the girl, form their own family and take to burying animals. First, they make crosses, then they begin stealing them. The thefts are discovered and the girl is brought to the attention of the authorities who send her into an orphanage. On first release, critical reception was evenly divided. It screened at the Cannes and Venice International Film Festivals to acclaim. Back home, it was called a vicious and unfair picture of the peasantry of France. Such vitriol saw ticket sales in France in part no doubt inspired by the contemptuous use of the word peasant, saw. In the USA, critic Bosley Crowther championed the film, writing the film has the irony of Grand Illusion, 1937, 
the authenticity of Harvest, Random Harvest, 1941, and the finesse of French films at their best, making a brilliant and devastating drama of the tragic frailties of men, clear and uncorrupted by sentimentality or dogmatism in its candid view of life. I can understand what he's saying, but I wonder if we saw the same film. Director René Clément takes a detached viewpoint that removes us emotionally from the action. His focus is on an anti-war sentiment created from rationality. He does not want us to take an anti-war stance by having our emotions manipulated by the drama. He wants us to take an anti-war stance because it is the only rational response. Director René Clément was born on March the 18th, 1913 in Bordeaux, France, and he died in 1996. René studied architecture at the École des Beaux-Arts, where he discovered a passion for film. In 1936, he directed his first film, a short starring Jacques Tati. The next year, he was in Yemen with archaeologist Jules Bartho to shoot a documentary. When World War II ended, and as a victim of two world wars, it should come as no surprise that, as a director, René wanted to make sense of this. The process began with 1945's La Battle du Rail, followed by Les Maudits, The Damned, 1947, Jus Interdit, and Is Paris Burning, from 1966. The 50s was René's Oscar-winning period. Actor Georges Pouloulli was born on January the 20th, 1940 in Gachet, France, and he died in 2000. As an actor, the 50s belonged to him. Georges worked with such notable French directors as René Clément, André Cayat, Henri-Georges Clouseau, Roger Vadim, and Louis Malle. As an adult, most of his work was voiceovers in foreign language films. The fact that so many films didn't speak of the French worked to his financial advantage. Actor Bridgette Fossey was born on June the 15th, 1946, in Tourcoing, France. Joy and the D was her first film. Critic David Ehrenstein wrote of Bridgette's performance in Forbidden Games that it is quite simply one of the most uncanny pieces of acting ever attempted by a youngster. Clément's sensitivity doubtless accounts for much of what we see here, but the rest is clearly Fossey's own. Her parents removed her from the industry when she was 10, although her last appearance as a child was in 1957's The Happy Road, directed by Jean Kelly. Bridgette studied acting at the studio d'entertainment de l'acteur in Paris. She worked with new wave auteur directors such as François Truffaut and Bertrand Blier and with Hollywood New Wave director Robert Altman. Stories about the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima generally deal with events leading up to this war crime. In a change of pace, the next film looks at the long-term consequences. Genbaku no Ko Children of Hiroshima Director and script Kanito Shindo Director of photography Taiyo Ito Editor Yoshitama Imaizuma, music Akira Ifukubi, actors Nobuko Otowa, Osamu Takezawa, Masao Shimizu, Akira Yamanuichi, and Takashi Ito.
The film opens with a pan down the edge of a building and then a track along its side, seeing the devastation beyond the windows. At its core, this is a propaganda film asking for help for the citizens of Hiroshima. To make this point, it uses a docudrama format. A female kindergarten teacher lives on an island off the coast of Japan. She is taking her leave in Hiroshima, a city she worked in during the war, to find out what happened to her pupils there. She is staying with friends who give her a tour of the city and tells her that now only three of them can be located. On the way to her first encounter, she comes across a hideously scarred blind beggar. She recognizes him as a former workman of her father's. Blinded in the flash, he can no longer work. She determines to help him. His only surviving relative is his nephew, whom he has placed in an orphanage. For reasons undisclosed, in the subtitles, he refuses to allow her to be the boy's guardian and refuses to leave Hiroshima so they both can lead better lives. His solution is a botched suicide. She tracks down the first pupil just in time for his father to die from radiation poisoning. The second pupil is dying in a Catholic establishment. The third pupil is celebrating the nuptials of his sister. She was promised during the war, but became crippled. Her fiancé refused to marry her until he had rebuilt the family business so he could support her. Overall, this is a depressing film full of those marvellous tracking shots, of which I include the crane shot of the boy running through the streets. It's the tracking shots that give energy and life to the film. The A-bomb is blamed for Hiroshima's pain. No mention is made of the necessity of its use. Director Kanito Shindo was born on April the 22nd, 1912, in Hiroshima, Japan. He died in 2012. Kanito began work in the film industry in 1934 as an assistant art director. He wanted to become a scriptwriter. With that aim in mind, he became a trainee under director Kenji Mizuguchi. Mizuguchi did not teach script writing, but Shindo felt that working with Mizuguchi would help his writing. For World War II, Kanito was drafted into the Imperial Navy, where he served for 21 months and became one of only six surviving members of his 100-strong unit. After the war, he entered the script department of Shochiko. Working there, he discovered he did not want to be a company man and formed his own company. By 1960, the company was almost bankrupt. A last throw of the dice was the film Hadaka no Shima, which was made at a cost of one-tenth of his usual budget. The film won the Grand Prix at the Moscow International Film Festival, and this fame saved the company. He said of the film, The film was made as a cinematic poem to try and capture the life of human beings struggling like ants against the forces of nature. Composer Akira Ifakubi was born on May the 31st, 1914, in Kushio, Japan. Akira grew up influenced by Ainu music after his family moved to Otofuke. As a teenager, he came under the influences of Igor Stravinsky and Manuel de Falla. They decided him to become a composer. Despite this decision, 
Akira found himself studying forestry at Hokkaido Imperial University and composed during his spare time. His big break almost came through corresponding with George Copeland. This correspondence broke down during the Spanish Civil War. George was living in Spain at the time, and the opportunity was lost. The real big break can be assigned to 1935, a few years before the Spanish Civil War, when Akira won an international competition for young composers. Or it could be assigned to World War II, when Akira, conscripted into the Japanese Imperial Army, was assigned to study the elasticity and vibrating strength of wood. This involved the use of x-rays when Japan could not afford shielding. Akira fell sick with radiation poisoning and was forced to leave the study and become a professional composer-stroke teacher. His film career began in 1947. In the West, he is most associated with the scores to Godzilla films. Next episode, I'm having a holiday. Only joking. No, we travel to 1972 to see Pink Floyd and George Harrison in concert. Should be interesting. More movie history can be found in the ebook series Movie Chronicles. And if you'd like to support this podcaster, consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Con- consider seriously, for it only encourages me. Until next time, kia kaha, and remember, nout comes from nout.